Now, would you please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll read verses 20 to 25. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 20. We have here the guarantee of a better covenant. Verse 20. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be our high priest, a better priest, the superior priest, the high priest of our redemption. Thank you for him. Now we pray that we'll appreciate what you have done and be fully committed to that and not put our confidence in anything else or in anyone else. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue our journey in this chapter of the Apostle showing us and proving to us that Jesus is superior to anyone else and anything else. He is superior. He has many arguments throughout this chapter. Now he focuses on two main arguments for this passage. In verses 20 to 22, 20 to 22, he speaks of the oath that Jesus received or that God announced when he announced the priesthood of Christ, an oath. The previous priests did not have an oath when they were installed, but Jesus had an oath. And then in the case of verses 23 and 24, the fact that the previous priests existed in great numbers. They existed in great numbers from the time that they were installed in the time of Moses and Aaron, Aaron and his sons, all the way into the first century until the temple was destroyed. The priesthood was in, in place. It was in view. So for about 1,500 years, 1,500 years, we have generation after generation of priests who are serving. And the priests were not serving alone, but they had many of their brethren, many within their family who were serving as priests. The males were serving. So it wasn't just one priest in one generation. According to First Chronicles, such as First Chronicles 24, and the, that sequence of passages in First Chronicles, there were numerous priests, generation after generation. In one generation, there were numerous ones because they took turns in the service of the temple. So it's in this way that he argues in verses 23 to 24, they existed in great numbers, but there's only one Jesus. Only one. And he holds that priesthood forever. And then his conclusion, he says, hence or therefore, verse 25, what is the benefit? Why should we look at it this way? Because Jesus is the only way. He is the only way of salvation. Now this should call our attention to a few aspects or a few regular or perennial temptations that we all face. Everyone faces these temptations. And that is to put confidence 
in a system or to put confidence in a thing, to put confidence in a person, put, putting confidence in men. When this passage is intended to show us, we should not do so. Even when it is God-ordained, such as this priesthood, it was God-ordained. God commanded Moses and Aaron to institute this Levitical priesthood, an Aaronic priesthood for the high priesthood office. It was God who ordained it. So it was good because God ordained it. He commanded it. But he did not command it for them to put their confidence in it. He commanded it for them to understand what it signified, that they should be looking for a greater priest. They should be looking to eternal life, not to the life of the individual or the system or this priesthood going from Aaron onward. They should not put their confidence in that, but put their confidence in Christ. And it is in the same way that we have these temptations. We think that there are different means of salvation. We think that God ordains it for one group to be saved in one way and another group to be saved in another way. We think also that it's good to put our confidence in men. We forget that God said in Jeremiah 17, 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and does not make the Lord his trust. What's the point? The point is we need to put our confidence in God. Don't believe man. Don't believe in any man. Even if he is a minister of the gospel, it does not matter. Don't believe him. Do not trust him. Go straight to the word of God, God's word. Go straight there and find out what you need to believe, what you need to know, what true wisdom is, how to live your life, how your values should be conforming to the values of the Bible. Make your life conform to the life of Christ according to the way the Bible describes it, only by the Bible. That's the point he's making in various ways in our passage and throughout this whole letter. He's making this point that we don't need anyone, we don't need anything, we only need Christ by the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ. That's all we need. And then we know God. Otherwise, we don't know him. Okay, now let's focus for a few moments on these two contrasts he makes, the oath and the great numbers of priests in reference to priests and only one priest. So firstly, the oath. Verse 20. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Okay, no one can deny, no one can deny in any fair-minded, objective reading of the Old Testament, no one can deny that the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical tribe, that they were all installed without an oath. We cannot find in any place throughout the Old Testament where God introduced that priesthood and introduced it with an oath. No, it was merely by his command. He merely said, this is what I want to happen, and then that's what happened. Moses did it, and Aaron did it. They obeyed what God told them to do. He merely commanded it. He merely said, this is what should happen, and then it happened. But he nowhere swore to confirm his word. His word is enough, right? His word is enough. Whenever he commands something, his word 
should be enough. And it was enough to institute and establish that priesthood in the time of Moses. That was enough. So we would look long and hard in English, in Hebrew, wherever you want to go to look, to grope and find, and you will not find an oath for that installation. When the Mosaic Covenant was instituted for that priesthood, there is no oath anywhere. And that's why he presents it here as a matter of fact, because he knows only a spurious man and only an insane man, only an ignorant man would say, no, 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 the Aaronic priesthood did have an oath. No, it did not. So then, if it did not get instituted with an oath, it was only the command of God which was sufficient, why then, why then, when God establishes the priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of the Messiah, why then does he say, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind? That is, he swears an oath and he will not change his mind about it. He's not going to have doubts about it. He's not going to second guess himself. He's going to say it. And this is what will happen. And when he swears this oath, he, he has the ability, he has the means, he has the sovereignty to ensure that what he says is going to happen will indeed happen. So naturally we have to ask, why would he swear an oath? He swore an oath not because God needed to hold himself accountable, the Father needed to hold himself accountable, he did not swear an oath because he wanted to hold the Son accountable, the Son of God accountable, or the Holy Spirit, or anything like that. It wasn't for God's own necessity that he did so. He did it for our necessity. He did it for our instruction. He did it for our consolation, for our comfort, for our conviction and certainty that God has indeed provided for us. That's why he swore an oath. He swore an oath so that we might see that our only way of salvation is not in Aaron or Aaron's descendants, not in the animals that they put on the altar, not in anything instituted like that, but in Christ. He swore an oath to make us realize that this is the only way, so we better pay attention to it. We better pay attention because God has not sworn otherwise related to the priesthoods. But in this case, he did. And why did he do so? Because Jesus is his son. Jesus is the only savior. He possesses a fully divine nature and a fully human nature without sin. He is the only one who is prepared. He is the only one who is suitable to pay the penalty for our sins. Our sins deserve an eternal penalty Therefore, he has a divine nature because whatever is done against God deserves an eternal penalty since he is an eternal God. Therefore, if Jesus receives the penalty, being the eternal God in human flesh, then we can have an eternal reward. We can have eternal salvation. But he also needed to be human in order to represent us, in order to take our punishment. He needed to be fully human without sin. And... Therefore, if he's fully human, without sin, he takes our penalty, he is our suitable and proper, prepared mediator between us and God. That's why it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God 
and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He called him the man Christ Jesus. He emphasized this word man, even though Jesus implies that he is man. He said man because he needed to be a man, a perfect man, to pay for our sins. Well, all of this is prophesied in the Old Testament, and all of this is explained in place after place throughout the New Testament, and all of this is surrounding this oath. He swore an oath to highlight this fact, to, for us to see that we need to pay attention to this single individual. He is the only way. There is no other way but by him. That's why he swore. So that it would give us both instruction and consolation and conviction that Jesus is the only way. And not only that, but notice that you are a priest forever. That he is a priest forever. What is implied there or stated there, he's going to explain in verses 23 and 24. That Jesus is this priest forever. So if this is the case, that there is an oath associated with the priesthood that Jesus possesses, verse 22, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. He's saying that Jesus has become the guarantee. He is the surety. There is no reneging, there is no doubt that he is the guarantee of a better covenant. Because what Jesus does, does he does not do for animals, he does not do for plants, he does for us, for his people, and he does this for eternity. It's better. He's not just preserving physical life, he's preserving eternal life for us. So he's got a better covenant. He is the guarantee of something that's better. He's not only granting them to inherit the land of Canaan physically, which was a wonderful thing, but that wasn't the end. That wasn't the ultimate purpose. The end or the ultimate purpose was eternal life, which Joshua himself is not the means of eternal life. He gave them the life in the land of Canaan. He conquered the enemies. They inherited Canaan. But Joshua himself was not the means of eternal life. So Jesus was. Jesus was because he conquered on our behalf. He conquered sin. He conquered the devil. He conquered all the forces of the world by being raised from the dead on the third day. And because of this, he is the guarantee of a better covenant. He is the captain, our captain. He's our pilot. He's our forerunner. And he has this covenant, and he has demonstrated this by rising from the dead and being seated at the right hand of the Father. So what he has is much better than what Joshua provided the people in the land of Canaan, because it lasts forever. It's better because there is forgiveness of sins. You see, many of the people that inherited Canaan, they were still sinning. They, even though they sinned, they inherited that land of Canaan. But in the case of Jesus, even though we sin, we can be forgiven of sins and we can have full communion with God. God, who will not be in our presence because of our sins, will permit us to be drawn into his presence because of Christ. Not because of our goodness, not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness, 
reckoned to us, imputed to us, we're able to enter into the presence of God. So this is better because it's eternal and because we have Christ providing all of this for us. Furthermore, verse 23. 23, and the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, behold, uh, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. The priests of the past, they existed in greater numbers. Remember, it was not only one priest in every generation. There were numerous priests in every generation for 1,500 years. They all lived and they all had their roles in the tabernacle service and in the temple service and in the teaching ministry throughout the land of Israel. They had these roles. There were numerous ones. Well, does that not by its very nature indicate that the confidence we have should not be in them? If we put our confidence in them, then Shouldn't that cause some dissonance in our minds? Why am I putting my confidence in all these men? They come and go. There's a bunch of them. Why do I put my, my eternal life, my soul, in their hands? Why do I trust that what they do as a mediator in some symbolic sense, why should I think or why would I think that they, by what they do, can save me from my sins? No. Because they exist in great numbers, and Jesus is only one, why don't I trust in Jesus? You see, this is the same uh, false mentality that exists in the world among the many religions, especially the pagan religions that worship idols. Why is it, if God is God, or God, the concept of God is true, if, the, if uh, theism is true, why is it that there are numerous gods? Why is it that there are numerous gods? Why would, do we call them gods if there are numerous gods? Not just two or three or ten or twelve, but they believe in millions upon millions of gods, innumerable gods in, in many cases. They believe in that. So how can that be true? It does not ever strike their minds to think that because I believe in many gods, I'm believing something false. I cannot put my confidence in it. I should not put my confidence in it. It doesn't come to their mind to reject their religion. Uh, unless, of course, God changes them and shows them how foolish it is. <coughs> In the same way with the priesthood. Why is it that anyone would think that because there were numerous priests that they should put their confidence in whatever that priesthood was doing as though their salvation depended on that priesthood? No, not at all. Especially when you have a clear contrast in the Old Testament such as Psalm 110, that says, no, that Messiah has a priesthood that lasts forever, and he's the only one. He is the only one. There aren't two or, or 2,000 or 20 million messiahs. There's only one messiah. Only one. And he is the one that exists forever. And then that's his contrast in verse 24. The other priests... They're prevented by death from continuing. Death makes their priesthood temporary. Whether it's a couple of decades or from age 20 uh, or 25 or 30 
to age 50, and then their retirement, and then they carry on some duties, but not all the duties, whatever. It's only for a few decades that they live and they do this because death prevents them. If death prevents them, in what way were they able to do something that was good or better or sufficient to help us? If they die and perish, their bodies are buried, then what about us? Why would we put our confidence in them when they are dead and buried, and we're going to be dead and buried? What, why put any confidence in them? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. He says, on the other hand, he, Christ, because he abides forever. Now he takes up this word again that occurred in verse 21. You are a priest forever. And forever means forever. It's quite clear that forever means forever because he's contrasting the temporary nature of the Aaronic priesthood with the permanent nature of the Melchizedekian priesthood that Jesus possesses. Only he possesses it. And that's why he says he holds his priesthood permanently. He does not transfer it to anyone else because after he died and paid the penalty for our sins, three days later he rose from the dead. It didn't take a long time. It wasn't arduous. It didn't take a decade or 20 or 30, 100 years. It didn't take a long time to wait for it. It took only three days. And after three days, he rose from the dead to vindicate what all he preached and, and, and ministered about who he was and why he came into the world. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Because of his resurrection from the dead, we know that what he did on the cross is of value. He said, because I live, you shall live also. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Because he rose from the dead, he rose for our justification. He rose, at Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification or for our justification. If he did not rise from the dead, we could not have justification only because he died can we be justified or declared righteous because his righteousness is reckoned to our account. And so, he has it forever. He has it permanently. That's another clear distinction. He only has this. Therefore, isn't eternity better than time? If you have some enjoyment, just to use an earthly analogy, if you have some enjoyment now, isn't having that enjoyment in the perfect state for all eternity better than enjoying it just now for five seconds or ten minutes or however long we might in this world? Isn't what we would enjoy forever better? Isn't it superior? Shouldn't we put our hope and confidence in that? Such as we have the Holy Spirit given to us as a deposit as a pledge in Ephesians 1, 13. The Holy Spirit, 13 and 14, has been given to us. So what we enjoy now by the Spirit, isn't it better to enjoy that forever and ever? Yes, of course it is. And in the full sense, not in a partial sense, because we still fight the flesh and the world and the devil now, right? So whatever is experienced forever in all eternity why would we not put our confidence in that? And in this case, in Him, in Christ, and what He's done for us. It should be clear, plain, obvious to all of us that God has called us to put confidence in Christ 
not anyone or anything else. Because what he has done is forever. And if we are in him, if we are united to him, we too will have this forever. Then he concludes, verse 25. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hence also, here is how he summarizes. Why do we need to know all this? Why is all of this so important? Because he, Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He's able to save us permanently, forever, without any breach. It will last on and on and on. There will be no relapse into the situation of this world. It's not going to be as though whenever death occurs, we're going to experience it in, uh, in heaven for about a year or 10 years or 100 years, and then suddenly something else is going to happen, and it's going to cause a breach, as though we could sin again. There are some who think that once we're in heaven, at some point we could sin again, and everything will be disrupted. Some people think, in, within Christianity, some people think that whatever we experience in heaven is susceptible to evil and to a change back and resorting back to the way things are here. Something like that. They believe that. But no. He says that what he does, the scripture says that what Christ does, he's able to save forever. It will last on and on and on. That should cause us to be thankful, to rejoice that whatever we experience now is only temporary. And since it's only temporary, we should derive comfort and hope that we don't live for the world, we live for eternity because we will experience this salvation. Salvation from sin, salvation from evil and death and misery forever. He's able to save us in that way. Is that not what it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 4? When we experience the presence of God, it says, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The first things have passed away. Notice there is no conditional statement in Revelation 21.4. Unless and until we sin again. Unless and until the devil comes up out of hell and somehow invades heaven and somehow causes chaos and destruction. It doesn't say anything like that. There's no hint of that. As well, there's no hint of that in Hebrews chapter 7. Because he's able to save forever. Therefore, this is what we have. But who has this? We say we enjoy this, but who specifically? He clarifies in verse 25, Hebrews 7, 25, those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to God through him. Well, two points here, or three, we may say. Those who draw near. What does it mean to draw near? This is another way in the Bible to say those who have faith. Those who have faith, faith and repentance, because the two are two sides of a coin. 
Those who have faith and repentance, that's what it means to draw near. To draw near to God like that. That, that means it requires faith, it requires repentance. We must turn away from sin, and we must believe in what God has done on our behalf. It does not happen automatically. It happens by drawing near. And drawing near is faith and repentance. It's also drawing near to God. And this God is not any God, it's the true God. In the Bible, there is only one living God. There is only one true God. There aren't many. There aren't two or 2,000 or 2 million or 333 million, as Hindus believe. It is not like that. There is only one true God. So we must come to God, the true one. And we cannot come to God according to our own terms, according to human inventions, according to human religions. We have to come to God through Him, meaning Christ. There is only one way to come to God, to the true God, through Christ. It's not through Christ plus Confucius, plus Zoroaster, plus Mohammed, plus Krishna, or anyone else. It's not Christ plus, or it's not the other one instead of Christ, and in rejection of Christ. No, it's only Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. For, and for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. It's only through Christ, from, gener uh, from Genesis to Revelation. It's only through Christ that we're saved. Repentance and faith. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. Then the assurance. The assurance that this is the way. It says here, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Yes, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Three days later, though, he rose from the dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And then over a period of 40 days, he manifested himself to his disciples and even to five, more than 500 brethren at one time, Jesus manifested himself with many convincing proofs that he did indeed rise from the dead. And after the 40 days, he ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1. He ascended into heaven and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why it says in Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Father said that to the Son to sit at the right hand of the Father, figuratively, metaphorically speaking, sit at the right hand of the Father until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which means that there is something that happens between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. After the first coming of Christ, He sits at the right hand of the Father upon His ascension into heaven. But he has to sit there until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. And when will he make his enemies a footstool for his feet? When he returns. When he returns, he will return in flaming fire, dealing out retribution against those who do not know God and to those who do not know our Lord Jesus Christ and obey the gospel of our God. 2 Thessalonians 1. He will do so 
when he returns. And then, after he destroys all of his enemies, the last enemy that he'll destroy is death. So, he's going to reign until all of his enemies are destroyed. He is reigning right now in heaven. Now, what is he doing as this victorious king who is reigning at the right hand of the Father? What is he doing for our benefit? Here he says, he's all, he always lives to make intercession for them. He is there interceding for us. Now, this intercession is not in any, any way like he's constantly talking to the Father and constantly petitioning the Father for us. It's not like that. He's merely saying, in human words, that Jesus is there to ensure that we make it there. He is there to ensure that we make it there. Because he always lives to make intercession for them. The them are us, we who draw near in repentance and faith. He's there always, and he will ensure that in due time, whether we pass from this world now before he returns, or upon his return, and that we're still alive, we will make it there too. That's the salvation that he has guaranteed to us. That's why this covenant is a better covenant. Because Christ, he was, he was given a people from the Father. The Father granted a people, a redeemed people. He gifted this redeemed people to the Son. And the Son will enjoy communion with these people, us, the people of God, forever. And of course, this is applied because the Holy Spirit goes and changes the heart and quickens the heart, regenerates the heart, and causes people to glorify the Son. And then the Son glorifies the Father. This is why Jesus is the mediator or the guarantee of a better covenant. An oath was pronounced, and he also possesses it permanently. There is no death that overcomes him. And, in fact, not only does death not overcome him, but what he has, the life he has, he gives to us. So why would this not be better? Why would this not be superior? We should put our hope in Christ and no one else and in nothing else. Don't let our faith waver. Don't let people confuse you. Don't let the world, the flesh, and the devil bring all kinds of doubts and, and, and misery into your life because of uncertainties. No, put your full confidence in Christ. Christ, the person of Christ, by the word of Christ, and the spirit of Christ. He is what we need. He is the only one we need. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Father in heaven, 